Welcome to the Selden Society Lecture Series Podcast. I'm David Bratchford, Supreme Court Librarian. I'm also the Honorary Secretary and Treasurer of the Selden Society in Australia, which is administered by the Supreme Court Library Queensland. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast series of lectures. The lecture you are about to hear is entitled Law and Politics in Macaulay's Case and is presented by Professor Nicholas Aroni from the University of Queensland. It was part of our 2018 lecture series. Thomas Macaulay's controversial appointment to the Supreme Court of Queensland in 1917 provoked a legal challenge that ultimately reached the Privy Council in the United Kingdom. April marks the anniversary of Macaulay's untimely death in 1925. To find out more about the Selden Society, to become a member or view details of upcoming lectures, visit the Supreme Court Library Queensland website. A link's provided in the podcast notes. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Of the many cases that have dealt with the constitutions of the Australian states, Thomas Macaulay and the King is one of the most significant, certainly I think the most fundamental, and in its day it was also one of the most controversial. The case concerned the appointment of Thomas William Macaulay as President of the Queensland Industrial Arbitration Court in early 1917 and as a judge of the Supreme Court later that year. The appointments were contested because the statute under which they were made, the Industrial Arbitration Act, was in certain respects inconsistent with the Constitution Act of Queensland. The inconsistency was that while the Constitution Act required Supreme Court judges to be appointed for life, the Industrial Arbitration Act allowed for their appointment for a limited term of seven years. The constitutional significance of Macaulay's case was twofold. Its first significance concerned the independence of the Supreme Court from the government of the day. If judges can be appointed for a term of years, then the government is in a position to influence the judges by declining to appoint those who decide cases contrary to its interests. The second, and indeed even more fundamental significance of the case, concerned the status of the Queensland Constitution. Is the Constitution Act a kind of fundamental law that limits the powers of the Parliament, or is the Parliament in the position of a sovereign legislature, possessing legislative powers effectively unlimited by the Constitution? The Macaulay litigation was intricate and involved. No less than three layers of courts addressed the issue. The Supreme Court of Queensland, the High Court of Australia and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. The Privy Council's conclusion that the Parliament is indeed legislatively sovereign and therefore free to amend the Constitution Act simply by legislating inconsistently with it constitutes the essential proposition upon which all subsequent state constitutional law in Australia has been founded. In my lecture today, I will discuss Macaulay's case under five headings. First, Macaulay's life. Second, the politics of the time. Thirdly, the Queensland Constitution. Fourthly, the Macaulay proceedings. And finally, the reasoning of the courts. And so part one, life. Thomas Macaulay was born in Toowoomba on 24 July 1881, the sixth of eight children. Here is a photo of the young Thomas with his brothers. Thomas is the smaller boy at the back. 
Their father, James Macaulay, was a drover, born at um, Moorhorn near Drumshambo, if anyone knows where that is, in country Leitrim in Ireland in 1839. Their mother, Mary Ann, or I think Anna Maria Lee Stenner, was born in Darmstadt, Hessen, Germany, it appears, in 1847, although I saw a record that referred to 1848 in some records. Consistent with the Roman Catholic faith of the family, the young Thomas was educated at St Patrick's Boys' School in Toowoomba. However, the financial state of the family forced him to leave school at the age of 14, working first as a teacher and then as a clerk in a solicitor's office. Shortly before his 18th birthday, Macaulay passed the public service examinations and was appointed a clerk, first with the Queensland Government Savings Board, Bank, and later with the Public Service Board, and finally within the Department of Justice. Advancing rapidly through the ranks, he soon became Attorney General James Blair's private secretary, and in this capacity helped draft the Workers' Compensation Act of 1905 and a commentary on the Act. Studying after hours, Macaulay passed the prescribed examinations and was admitted to the Queensland Bar in 1907 on the motion of Blair. Macaulay's work within the Justice Department must have been impressive. The late Bruce McPherson wrote of his ability. In 1910, Macaulay was appointed Crown Solicitor by Blair under the Liberal Labor government of William Kidson. His public service career reached further heights in 1915 when he was appointed Under Secretary for Justice under the newly formed Labor government of Thomas Joseph Ryan. None of this occurred without hard work and in the face of opposition. In his thesis on the Macaulay case, Tim O'Dwyer has recounted how the law, Queensland Law Association opposed Macaulay's appointment as Crown Solicitor, insisting that a solicitor should be appointed to that position. This kind of opposition would mark much of Macaulay's career, a conflict and antagonism marked in personal, partisan, philosophical ways. Part two, politics. The government of TJ Ryan was the first Labor administration in Queensland to be elected with a clear majority in the Legislative Assembly. True to its platform, the government embarked on an ambitious program and such an agenda attracted political opposition from Conservative members of the Legislative Council. Moreover, the disposition of the government to use its executive and legislative powers in novel ways and to the fullest extent possible led to court challenges and to heated confrontations between the government and the Supreme Court. One of the principal legislative initiatives of the Ryan government was the Industrial Arbitration Act. As Crown Solicitor, Macaulay appears to have taken a key role in its drafting, together with Edward Theodore, who was then Secretary for Public Works. While the Act was presented as a measure designed to secure industrial peace, Theodore made it clear that it was intended to establish an industrial arbitration system which would strengthen the industrial unions and promote the interests of the working class. At the centre of the Act was the newly formed Queensland Court of Industrial Arbitration, Section 6 established the court and authorised the Governor-General to appoint its judges, one of whom was to be designated President. Subsection 6 of that section required the President and judges of the court to be appointed for a term of only seven years, but eligible for reappointment. In addition, subsection 6 provided that arbitration judges could be appointed to the Supreme Court, bypassing 
and to an extent contradicting provisions of the Constitution Act requiring that they be granted life tenure during good behaviour and setting the maximum number of judges at five. It was this provision in the Arbitration Act that would be the focus of the constitutional challenge in Macaulay's case. Macaulay was appointed President of the Arbitration of Court in January 1917. By this time, he had deeply absorbed progressive collectivist beliefs. Macaulay had read the Fabian tracts and other democratic socialist writings of George Bernard Shaw and Sidney Webb. An avid proponent of Fabianism, Fabianism, as Ross Fitzgerald put it, it appears, from a copy of correspondence kindly sent to me by Des Macaulay, that Thomas dined with Shaw and with Ryan in London in 1916, and here's the letter setting up that event. Des Macaulay has also drawn my attention to the fact that Macaulay met with the mother of Padraic uh, Pierce, who had been executed after the 1916 Easter uprising in Ireland. Macaulay was especially influenced by his friend and correspondent, Henry Bournes Higgins, President of the Commonwealth Court of Conciliation and Arbitration and a Justice of the High Court of Australia. Letters between Macaulay and Higgins reveal a warm and courteous relationship in which they exchanged books, discussed political matters and confided about industrial relations matters appearing before them, including, as it happened, the Macaulay case itself. Writing to Higgins about his own little matter, Macaulay said that he had no doubt that the decision of the Supreme Court of Queensland would be adverse to him. The atmosphere of hostility, political, professional and personal, certainly favoured such a result. This private correspondence between the two raises a serious question about the appropriateness of Justice Higgins sitting on the High Court appeal in Macaulay's case, as we'll see. Macaulay was certainly effusive in his praise of Higgins. He regarded him to have been the sheet anchor of the entire system of industrial regulation in Australia. As president of the Queensland Arbitration Court, Macaulay would show himself to be a dedicated disciple of his Victorian mentor. Edward Theodore appears to have been the prime mover behind Macaulay's appointment. He explained that the government was anxious to secure men of standing and ability who were also temperamentally fitted for this work of, work of this kind. It has been suggested that all that Theodore meant by this was someone possessing suitable knowledge to administer a new type of law. A similar view was expressed by Macaulay himself when he later observed that what was required was someone not diametrically opposed to the contemporary attitude of intelligent students of industrial problems. Macaulay argued that the tenure of arbitration judges should be for a fixed and limited term rather than for life to ensure that appointees would continue to possess what he called a reasonably modern industrial outlook. The arbitration court should be staffed by those of great altruistic qualities rather than those who desired power. Altruistic, altruistic attitudes and suitable knowledge and an intelligent grasp of the issues were no doubt necessary qualifications. However, also required, it seems, was a commitment to the progressive social objective of industrial reform and the alleviation of social injustice through industrial arbitration. Macaulay's sympathy for the Labor government's substantive policy goals was illustrated from the beginning of his term as president of the Arbitration Court, when he declared that the court would, be, would not be bound by precedent 
or strict legal rules, but would be guided by equity and good conscience. As an instrument of social justice, it would set wages by reference to the cost of living as determined by statistical evidence, suitably modified to ensure workers were guaranteed a fair and average standard of comfort. To do so, Macaulay continued, the court would not allow its discretion to be fettered by a rigid rule based on considerations of consistency. The new sciences of economics, statistics and political science would provide the data necessary to formulate industrial awards. In this way, Macaulay enthusiastically embraced this new change to the law. The expectations of the government were further realised when, in June 1917, President Macaulay determined that the Arbitration Court had jurisdiction to order employers to make union membership a mandatory qualification for employment. However, the government's objective was not just industrial justice, but also peace. And this implied a certain balance between the conflicting demands of employees and employers. The resolution of industrial disputes through arbitration was preferred to industrial action and collective bargaining, even though this placed Ryan, Theodore and Macaulay in conflict with the more militant unions. When strikes erupted in northern Queensland in 1919, Macaulay observed that the majority of the strikes were due to the desire to punish employers for their departure from the method of collective bargaining and for approaching his own court, the arbitration court. Macaulay's more moderate approach was reflected in his insistence that award wages should be struck at a rate which industry could afford to pay, and his unwillingness to side with those who, quote, habitually disregard the provisions of the law. Macaulay's understanding of law as a positive instrument of reform undergirded his preference for arbitration over collective bargaining. And I think this is significant. It also dovetailed with the idea that the parliament and the government should be free constitutionally to efficiently enact and administer laws for the betterment of society. In this context, the opposition to Macaulay's appointment was simultaneously personal, sectarian, partisan and ideological. Other more senior lawyers were passed over for judicial appointment so the opposition was not without a personal element. It was, after all, two senior Queensland silks who contested the validity of Macaulay's appointment on what they said were, quote, purely legal and constitutional grounds. Religious factors were also added in the, in the, in the mix and added a colourful dimension. <clears throat> Ryan, Theodore and Macaulay were Roman Catholic. Their opponents were mostly Protestant. When the Anglican bishop delivered an entire sermon criticising the Ryan government's various appointments, the Catholic archbishop replied immediately and in similar terms. The controversy was also partisan and ideological. Within the arguments of the opposition, it is possible to discern liberal conservative values of equality of opportunity and free enterprise. When Theodore stated that Macaulay was temperamentally fitted for the appointment, the opposition leapt on the political implication. Leading the attack, Edwin Foles suggested the appointment was made on the basis of politics, religion and personal friendship rather than merit, efficiency and seniority. In response, William Hamilton, the Secretary for Mines, claimed that Macaulay's sympathy for the objectives of the government did not mean he was appointed on the basis of his politics or his religion. 
But while the controversy was clearly political in character, it also had a definite legal dimension. Too close an association between the government and the courts would undermine the independence of the judiciary and prevent the courts from functioning effectively as constraints on government power. Supreme Court judges were appointed for life on fixed salaries precisely to insulate them from political pressure and interference. The Labor government's proposal that judges might be appointed for a limited term undermined this. The leader of the opposition, William Vowles, maintained that it was one of the foundations of our political institutions that judges should be independent and that this is attained by making them irremovable during good behaviour. Macaulay's ideological affinity with the Labor government may have made him temperamentally suited to the position, but too close an association between the government and the judicial branch risked undermining the capacity of the courts to uphold the rule of law. Part three, constitution. The colony of Queensland, together with its constitution, came into being pursuant to letters patent and an order in council dated 6 June 1859. Clause two of the order in council conferred upon the newly established Queensland legislature the power to make laws for the colony in all cases whatsoever. Moreover, Clause 22 made clear that this included full power and authority to amend or repeal the order in council in the same manner as any other laws. However, at the same time, Clause 15 adopted certain provisions of the New South Wales statute which dealt with the commission's removal and salaries of judges. Those sections provided that commissions of, of Supreme Court judges must continue during their good behaviour and made it lawful to remove a judge only upon an address of both houses of the parliament, and further provided that judicial salary must continue to be paid to each judge for the full duration of their commissions. In adopting these provisions, uh, the, the, orders in, the um, order in council implemented the guarantees of judicial tenure and salary that had been sec secured by the famous Act of Settlement in England in 1701. When the Queensland Constitution was consolidated in 1867, these provisions protecting judicial independence were reproduced in two statutes, the Supreme Court Act and the Constitution Act. The scheme of consolidation also include the, included the repeal of the order in council, but with one important exception. Clause 22 of the order, containing the fundamental power to amend or repeal the order in council itself and, by implication, the Constitution, remained untouched. Now, the controversy in Macaulay's case concerned the scope and meaning of these provisions. On one hand, the Parliament had been given full power to legislate, including the power to amend the Order in Council and the Constitution Act, in any particular, by any ordinary statute. On the other hand, the Order in Council contained provisions which protected the tenure and salaries of Supreme Court judges, as these had been reproduced in the Constitution Act. However, the Industrial Arbitration Act purported to set this aside, enabling the government to appoint judges for something less than life tenure. Now, to be clear, in the litigation, it was accepted by on all sides that the amending power included the capacity of the Parliament to amend the Constitution Act by way of explicit enactment, expressly directed to its repeal or amendment. The high constitutional issue was whether the Parliament had power to do this simply by implication, as a result of legislation which was merely inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution Act, 
but not expressly directed to its repeal or amendment. The Colonial Laws Validity Act of 1865 was also relevant. Section 5 of the Act provided that every colonial legislature would have full power to establish, abolish and reconstitute the courts of the colony. The section thus confirmed the powers of the colonial legislatures to amend their constitutions in this and all other respects. And if the colonial legislatures could do amend their constitutions expressly and directly, why not by implication? However, Section 2 of the Colonial Laws Validity Act maintained the principle that colonial laws would, con would be subject to the rule of repugnancy to imperial laws, regulations and orders. This left open the argument that the tenure of judges, enjoyed by judges, was derived from the order in council itself, which was itself authorised by an imperial statute, so that the Queensland legislature could not legislate in a manner repugnant to those provisions without first repealing them. There's lots of logical puzzles in the case. Part four, proceedings. The controversy in Macaulay's case began when he was appointed, when the Governor-General, um, on the advice of the Executive Council, issued a commission appointing Macaulay as a judge of the arbitration court and designating him president for a period of seven years. Macaulay duly began to perform the duties of office along with Judge McNaughton, who'd been a, court, a judge of the old industrial court. On the 12th of October, that is later that year, the governor issued the further commission appointing Macaulay a justice of the Supreme Court. And this is when the action began. At a sitting of the full court of the Supreme Court on 6 December, Macaulay presented his commission and requested that the Chief Justice administer the oath of office. When uh, those King's Council that I mentioned made their objections to Macaulay's appointment, the court suggested that it make a pro forma decision against its validity so that the matter could be determined in some appropriate manner, by which was meant either by the High Court or by the Privy Council. However, Macaulay asked that it be treated as an, all, treated as an ordinary matter before the full court of the Queensland Supreme Court. In due course, um, the submissions were heard. Um, Attorney General Ryan, and H.D. Macrossan argued for its validity of the appointment. On the 12th of February 1918, a little over two months later, Chief Justice Cooper delivered a lengthy opinion to the effect that Macaulay was not entitled to have the oath administered or to sit or hold a seat as a judge of the court. The principal reason was that the Industrial Arbitration Act, in providing for appointment for only seven years, was inconsistent with the Constitution, as we've seen. Four of the five members of the court joined in this opinion. Justice Real dissented on the ground that any provision of the Industrial Arbitration Act inconsistent with the Constitution was an implied amendment of the earlier Act and valid. Macaulay applied for leave, or special leave, to appeal to the High Court. The High Court declined to grant leave to appeal on the ground that the order issued by the Supreme Court was not a judgment within the meaning of Section 73 of the Commonwealth Constitution and therefore not within the High Court's jurisdiction. So it's getting messy. Having failed on this point and in order to bring the matter to a head, it must have been frustrating. On the 6th of March 1918, Macaulay took the required oaths before Judge McNaughton and thereafter claimed all the rights 
belonging to a judge of the Supreme Court. The plan they hatched was that an application for quo warranto requiring Macaulay to show by what authority he held office as a Supreme Court judge would be initiated as a means of reconstituting the proceedings in a form that could ultimately get appealed to the High Court. So the matter had to come before the Supreme Court first. <clears throat> and um, I'll move on and say that what a finalised application for that uh, writ was filed on the 16th of August and the full court confirmed its previous decision, um, pronouncing a judgment of ouster against Macaulay. Macaulay immediately appealed to the High Court, which heard argument from the 10th to the 12th of September and delivered its judgment on the 27th, a majority affirming the judgment of the Supreme Court and finding Macaulay's appointment unlawful. The ground of the High Court's decision was that Macaulay's commission was unauthorised by law and therefore invalid, and two separate lines of reasoning were offered. First, Chief Justice Griffith and Justices Barton and Gavin Duffy considered that if the Commission was on its proper construction for life, it was contrary to the Industrial Arbitration Act, which required a short term of office. Alternatively, Griffith, Barton and Powers reasoned that if the Commission was consistently with the Arbitration Act only for a fixed term of seven years, then both the Act and the Commission were invalid due to their inconsistency with the requirement that Supreme Court judges have life tenure. Hence the bind, hence the conclusion. Justices Isaacs and Rich and Higgins dissented. In a joint judgment, Isaacs and, Ricks and Rich considered that the Queensland Parliament had full power to legislate inconsistently with the Queensland Constitution in any respect and to amend it impliedly simply by legislating inconsistently with it. Higgins agreed with the power, their view of the power of the, of the Parliament, but preferred a construction of the Arbitration Act which authorised appointments to, for life. On his view, Macaulay's appointment was in fact for life and there was no inconsistency with the Constitution. Having lost in the High Court, Macaulay appealed to the Privy Council Due to the constitutional significance of the case, the Attorney-General for England intervened and the matter took some time to be heard. However, on the 8th of March 1920, the Judicial Committee allowed the appeal, reversing the decisions of the High Court and the Supreme Court. Lord Birkenhead delivered the opinion of the Privy Council, largely adopting the reasons of Isaacs and Rich, and categorically affirming the capacity of the Parliament to amend the Constitution simply by legislating inconsistently with it. The legality of his appointment to the Supreme Court having been affirmed, Macaulay duly took his seat in May 1920 while continuing to act as President of the Arbitration Court. Ryan, Theodore and Macaulay had seemingly been vindicated, but this came at the expense of a rapidly deteriorating relationship between the Government and the Supreme Court. When Theodore replaced Ryan in premier, as Premier in 1921, he introduced an act which instituted a compulsory retirement age of 70, and as a consequence, several judges, Cooper, Chubb and Reel, were forced to retire from office immediately. The Brisbane Courier alleged at the time that the act was an attempt to remodel the judiciary more in accordance with caucus ideas. Further, on the 1st of April 1922, Macaulay had his final triumph. 
the Attorney-General announced that he would be appointed Chief Justice. However, sadly, the triumph did not last long. Macaulay held that office for only three years. He tragically died of a heart attack when rushing to catch a train at Roma Street Station on the 16th of April, 1925. Just over there. Which way? Does anyone have a sense of direction? Sorry, I don't. <laughs> Part five, reason. We're on the home straight. It's noteworthy that the objections to the validity of Macaulay's appointment were said to be purely legal and constitutional. But in such a politically charged context, how easy is it to distinguish the legal from the political? Sir Owen Dixon famously insisted that strict and complete legalism is the only judicial policy that can secure the confidence of those engaged in politics. Is it possible to understand Macaulay's case in a way that preserves the integrity of the law against those who would reduce it to politics? Here it's important to recall that Sir Owen did not deny the political significance of judicial decisions, especially in constitutional cases. A constitution is a political instrument, he said, in that it deals with government and government powers. However, so Sir Owen also insisted that the considerations relied on by the courts must always remain legal. They must be derived from orthodox sources of law and use orthodox methods of legal reasoning. So what were the real considerations that determined the outcome in Macaulay's case? The first point to be observed is that the relevant legal materials, the Order in Council, the Constitution Act, the Colonial Laws Validity Act, and even actually Section 106 of the Federal Constitution, were not of themselves conclusive. On one hand, it was open to Chief Justices Cooper and Griffith and their colleagues to conclude that the relevant constitutional provisions not only guaranteed life tenure for Supreme Court judges, but operated with such force that they could not be amended or repealed. They, they could only be amended or repealed expressly. However, on the other hand, it was open to Justices Isaacs, Rich and Higgins and Lord Birkenhead and the other members of the Privy Council to consider that the legislative powers of the Parliament were as plenary and as absolute as the Imperial Parliament in the plenitude of its powers could bestow. This openness of the relevant legal materials meant that deeper considerations had to be decisive. Many of these considerations were theoretical and conceptual in nature. Chief Justice Griffith, for example, drew attention to the distinction between what he called fundamental and ordinary laws, a distinction which, while known to jurisprudence and well understood by those governed under written constitutions, was unlikely, he said, to be understood by English lawyers because under the British Constitution, Parliament is supreme and can make any laws it thinks fit. While stated matter-of-factly, Griffith's observation implied a certain disparagement of English lawyers and their principle of parliamentary sovereignty. Lord Birkenhead, as if deliberately wishing to show that an English lawyer need not be as ignorant as Griffith suggested, was at pains to demonstrate in his judge his opinion that his, uh, he was at pains to demonstrate his familiarity with the analyses of constitutional writers on the difference between what he called controlled and uncontrolled constitutions. The proposition that the Queensland Constitution amounted to a kind of fundamental or organic law was particularly prominent in the judgments of Griffith, Barton and O'Connor. The idea was that the Constitution Act both defined and limited the powers of the Parliament 
and state legislation would only be valid so far as it conformed to the authority conferred by the Constitution as the Constitution appeared at any point in time. This suggested a preference to what was back then called, and might still be called, the American approach to constitutionalism, in which written constitutions function as higher law and the courts have jurisdiction to ensure that legislation conforms to it. Griffith, Barton and O'Connor considered that if Queensland were to have a genuine constitution, it must be in the nature of a fundamental law. Griffith, Barton and O'Connor also underscored the importance of securing the independence of the judiciary. Of course, as Isaacs and Higgins, or sorry, Isaacs and Rich pointed out, to understand the principle of judicial tenure to be entrenched as a matter of fundamental law was in fact to go further than had happened in the United Kingdom, where the Act of Settlement certainly bound the Crown, but technically did not bind the Parliament. But the High Court and Supreme Court majorities were determined to treat the Queensland Constitution as a kind of fundamental law, which bound not only the government, but also the legislature. Against the argument from fundamental law, Lord Birkenhead, as well as Isaacs, Rich and Higgins, embraced the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. According to these judges, there could be no middle ground. The Constitution Act was either fundamental law or an ordinary statute. It was either controlled or it was not. But because the Queensland Parliament undoubtedly had the power to amend the Constitution in any manner it thought fit, the Constitution could not be a fundamental law. The Parliament was therefore a fully sovereign legislature. Isaacs and Rich drew on constitutional theory to support their conclusions, quoting A.V. Dicey's description of the Colonial Laws Validity Act as a charter of colonial legislative independence. To approach the question in this way was to favour a specifically British conception of the plenary powers of the Parliament vis-à-vis -vis the limited powers of the courts. Isaacs and Rich accordingly quoted the statement of Lord Selburne in the Crown and Borough that it is not for any court of justice to enlarge constructively the conditions and restrictions imposed on a colonial legislature. And Lord Birkenhead put it this way, that the British people had not in the framing of constitutions felt it necessary or useful to shackle <clears throat> the complete independence of their successors. They have shrunk from the assumption that a degree of wisdom and foresight has been conceded to their generation, which may be wanting in their successors, in, in spite of the fact that those successors will possess more experience of the circumstances and necessities amid which their lives are lived. So constitutional theory was an essential part of the reasoning of both sides. However, this is another part of the complexity. Neither theoretical framework was without its anomalies. Lord Birkenhead, Isaacs, Rich and Higgins sought to ground the plenary powers of the Parliament in a series of imperial statutes. But in so doing, they could not altogether dispense with the concept of fundamental law, at least in the form of imperial law applying with paramount force. Isaacs, for example, admitted that the sovereign powers of the Queensland Parliament were subject to certain fundamental principles established by the Colonial Laws Validity Act and the Order in Council, including the representative character of the Parliament, the fundamental conception of the Crown, and the sovereign Parliament of the power oh, sorry, sorry, the sovereign power of the Parliament to amend its own constitution. 
The difficulty for Isaacs was to explain how these aspects of the Constitution were fundamental when the independence of the judiciary was not. The corresponding di uh, difficulty for Griffith was to show how the fundamental aspects of the Constitution could be distinguished from the ordinary aspects of the statutory law of Queensland. The problem here was that apart from being contained within a statute labelled the Constitution, there was no formal set of distinguishing criteria. But as Isaacs and Rich and Higgins pointed out, there's no magic in the mere label Constitution. Constitutional law can be contained in all sorts of statutes, they argued. And further, how could the Constitution Act be regarded as a fundamental law when contained in an ordinary statute which can be amended by an ordinary statute? As Lord Birkenhead put it, a polity having both sets of characteristics would be unique in constitutional history. So, we come to the conclusion. If there were difficulties on both sides, why did the judges adopt the positions they did in Macaulay's case? Was it ultimately politics? But if so, what of the neutrality of the Constitution? How can it embody the fundamental ground rules on which all sides of politics agree? It's tolerably clear that the judges' conclusions generally corresponded with their personal, partisan and philosophical commitments. But can the reasoning of the judges be reduced to expressions of personal preference, partisan commitment and ideological bias? While a definitive answer may remain elusive, it is at least arguable that the critical ground of the decision was neither purely legal nor reductively political, but lay somewhere between those two poles, at the point of contact, as it were, between high constitutional theory and fundamental political philosophy. In other words, the case was ultimately decided in terms of contrasting theories of a political constitutional nature. The outcome in Macaulay's case seems ultimately to have turned on a conception of what the Constitution ought to be. Is it a fundamental law that limits the Parliament? Or at base, merely a positive law ultimately derived from the legislature? It seemed like a choice between these two conceptions had to be made. Now, what is interesting about this is that while it, you might think that Griffith's decision and the decision of the Supreme Court were driven by the current politics of the situation, it's fascinating that 30 years earlier, at the Federal Convention of 1891, Griffith, Samuel Griffith himself had said something which aligned very similarly to the position he adopted in Macaulay's case. During the convention debates, he expressed the hope that the Australian colonies might one day adopt what he called the American theory, that constitutions are acts of the people and that they get the people delegate legislative power to the legislature and the legislature can only work within the authority given to it. When Macaulay's reasoning in Macaulay is considered in this light, it appears the Chief Justice was striving to interpret the Queensland Constitution in a manner that came as close as possible to embodying the American theory. He could not claim that the people of Queensland had established the Constitution through some direct exercise of their fundamental constituent powers, but he could at least conclude that they enjoyed the benefit of a fundamental law which bound, even if only procedurally, the legislative powers of the Parliament. On the other hand, the view of parliamentary sovereignty articulated by Isaacs and Higgins 
coalesced neatly with the conception of government that they had articulated during the Federation debates also in the 1890s, often in opposition to the views of Griffith, Barton and others. On this view, as Professor McMinn observed, the Constitution was best understood as an organism capable of growth and adaptation to changing forces in society rather than a carefully regulated machine for the balancing of those forces. But as I mentioned, Thomas Macaulay sadly did not live to see the long-term results of the case that bears his name. Peter Macaulay has told me that Thomas was not eligible for a state-financed pension, uh, and this uh, placed his family in a great deal of difficulty. However, Thomas did receive a state funeral, and many moving memorials were penned in his honour. Just as Higgins expressed his profound sadness and sympathy for Macaulay's widow and grieving family, and profound poems were written extolling his virtues. Recent assessments of Macaulay's case may be enlightening. Professor Darrell Lum found in it a thoroughly Dicean approach to parliamentary sovereignty. Bruce McPherson considered its doctrine of absolute legislative despotism led to the situation where an executive which succeeds in controlling the Queensland Parliament occupies a position from which it is able to dominate all the organs of state. The former president of the Arbitration Court of Queensland, the late Mr David Hall, similarly characterised the theory of parliamentary sovereignty as a dogma and a doctrine of legislative despotism. And indeed, reflecting on the appointment of Macaulay to the Arbitration Court, he said, and I quote, Anyone with ears to hear would recognise that the position of president had been politicised. Malcolm Cope, on the other hand, while defending the Macaulay appointment, nonetheless expressed concern about the implications of the case for the independence of the judiciary, observing that the Privy Council gave free reign to parliamentary control of the judiciary by a simple act of parliament. And Mr John Pike has gone even further expressing the hope that the High Court might one day revive the doctrine that a law inconsistent with the State Constitution Act is invalid. One's assessment of Macaulay's case may still depend, as Bruce McPherson noted, upon the political allegiance of the, of the narrator. However, among those who have examined the case in detail, concern about the resulting legislative despotism is widely shared. The fact that commentators representing an array of positions on the political spectrum have expressed at least some regret about the constitutional consequences of Macaulay's case may suggest that issues that once gave rise to sharply divided ideological conflict appear somewhat different to us today with the benefit of hindsight. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Selden Society Lecture Series podcast. Please consider leaving a rating or review. We'd appreciate your constructive feedback. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast series to ensure future lectures are added to your podcast feed. A video of the lecture and a copy of the paper are available on the Supreme Court Library Queensland website. A link's provided in the podcast notes. Thanks for listening.